Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Steph Harmon, culture editor of Guardian Australia. Welcome to Behind the Lines. I've got a very special episode for you today. Australian author Tim Winton has spent the last little while delivering a talk around the country on lost boys and toxic masculinity, themes he explores in his brilliant new novel, The Shepherd's Hut. As fans of Winton know, there are few writers that can get to the heart of the failure of masculinity in the modern age quite like he can. We've got the full hour-long speech here, which was recorded at the Melbourne Convention Centre in March for the School of Life. A bit of a language warning on it, though. Tim Winton can get colourful. Everything's changed. I'm not what I was. All I am now is a fresh idea fanging north up the highway to where it's hot and safe and secret, with red dirt flashing by, mulga scrub, glinty stones, roadkill crows. The jeep reeks from all them slosh and jerry cans in the back, but the windows are open and the wind is warm and the stink of petrol beats the smell of blood any day. All of a sudden I'm hungry. I get the shotgun by the neck, heave it over on the back seat. I shove the box of shells away to get at the food and it's still warm on the tin plate. It's good and greasy and tastes of smoke. From the first swallow, I get a hot charge. And I drive like that, just under the limit, with a chop in one hand and the wheel in the other, laughing hard enough to choke. For the first time in my life, I know what I want. And I have what it takes to get me there. If you never experience that, I feel sorry for you. But it wasn't always like this. I've been through fire to get here. I've seen things and done things and had shit done to me you couldn't barely credit. So be happy for me. And for fuck's sake, don't get in my way. I had to start somewhere, didn't I? Well, listen. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Um, it was really kind of you to come. I would have felt like a bit of a knob standing here in uh, <laughs> Jeff's shed on my own. Um, and uh, before we get properly underway, I probably should uh, apologise in advance for the um, slight sweariness of uh, tonight's proceedings. Uh, I did try to, hard to keep myself nice, um, but I suspect that when I get home, Mum's going to wash me mouth out with soap. She'll be waiting at the airport with a stiff brush and a bottle of Handy Andy, <laughs> I reckon. Although in the old days, Trusol paste was her favourite. I think my teeth are still gritty from it. Anyway, sorry, Mum. But now that you're all here, and there's quite a lot of you, and now that I've had all the fire exits locked behind you, 
to prevent escapes because you've, you've done your dough now, sorry. I'd like you to pause a moment, if you would, and settle. The way they used to make us settle for story time or rest time when we were in kindergarten. Remember that in kindy? Sitting on the mat and everything? <laughs> well, I didn't bring the sock puppet and I forgot to bring the recorder, so we'll just have to improvise. And you should be warned that this exercise could rapidly escalate to the point where you're holding hands with a stranger in the seat next to you. For the moment, though, I'd like you to think about yourself as a kid, the kid you were, how you thought, what your world was like, who you thought you were. And I was joking, by the way, the, uh, <laughs> the exits are not locked and, the, uh, and this little group exercise doesn't involve special breathing or the holding of hands or, God forbid, any form of public singing or dancing. So you can relax. We might be in Melbourne, but we are still in Australia. <laughs> we, uh, we do that stuff in kindergarten and then uh, we spend the rest of our lives pretending we never did it at all. Actually, I can still remember my first day at kindy. I cried my eyes out. I clung to the chain-link fence like a weeping Charles Bronson in buckle-up sandals as my mum drove away in a Morris Minor. And the only thing that could console me that day was the faint prospect that there might be somebody more miserable and cowardly than myself. And lucky for me, there was. Although it turned out to be someone called Ferdinand the Bull. Remember him? The teacher pulled me aside and distracted me with this lovely book about, of all things, a bovine pacifist. And look, he was all horns and beefcake, the old Ferdinand, but he just wanted to smell the flowers. And that was all right. He was still a bull. There's more than one way of being a bull. I think I probably should have paid a little more attention to Ferdinand a little later in my life, especially when I was an adolescent. Anyway, cast your mind back to childhood a, bit, a moment if you can. Or if you prefer, maybe think about kids you know. Consider the scope and the shape of the world they live in. Not the great world of Putin and Trump and climate change, but the tiny contained world of childhood with its special logic, its urgent concerns. Now, when you're a kid, you think the narrow world you're from is the world entire. You can't be blamed for that because that's how it appears. It's, it's how it feels. Most of your native world is made at home. Family is the prime force and first culture. And for some of us, too many of us, I guess, this original world remains the world entire. Some of us never leave it. Not just the physical environment, I'm talking about the mental field too, the, the world of ideas. And even in this era, when everyone's barking about disruption and mobility, there are still plenty of people unable to exceed their own origins. Not because they're weak or lazy, but because there are powerful forces arrayed against them, like class, race, geography, economics, and of course gender. All of them are forms of entrapment. They can be forms of impoverishment, forms of injustice and of violence. Matters that trouble me, as I'm sure they trouble you. But they're not likely 
They're not things that I'm likely to change by writing a novel. Because a novel isn't a tool, it's a toy. And I'm reconciled to that. Art is about beauty. It creates a space for dreams, for empathy, for play, for mischief, for the posing of questions. And it needs no other excuse to defend its existence. The great mystery of art, though, is that it's both useless and yet somehow deeply necessary to a civilised life. And don't worry, I don't pretend to understand that either. But I I am reconciled to it. And after nearly 40 years in this caper, I probably should be. As you can tell, I don't subscribe to an instrumental view of literature. I don't write stories to prosecute a case. But when I speak of a novel as a toy, don't get me wrong, I'm not belittling the form. It means too much to me. And besides, there's great embedded energy in a toy. Part of that energy is the sly power that comes from having no practical purpose, no workaday job to do. Like the song that was probably stuck in your head while you drove here tonight. Somehow it's the useless things that get their hooks in you. A tool, well, that's something you use with intent, something fit for purpose. Think of a hammer, axe, or a screwdriver. Usually its purpose is narrowly defined, and once the task is completed, that tool is just dead weight, just something else to trip over and curse, if you're anything like me. But a toy, though, a a toy is something you get to know out of curiosity, without much purpose or intention. Think of the yo-yo, the old slinky, the hula hoop, the spinner, or the ordinary cold and slightly creepy blob of Play-Doh. You come across it, you pick it up, delighted or sceptical in the case of Play-Doh, you pick the cat pubes out of it, (laughs) you turn it over, you try it out and just try to figure out what it is. Not what it'll do so much as what it can be. And that initial curiosity can often lead to preoccupation or even obsession. The toy alters the space you're in. It takes you somewhere by occult means for reasons you can never quite explain. And you return to it, you try it again, you play with it differently. You take it with you wherever you go, just as you do with a song or a novel, because for some reason, useless stuff resonates. The virtue of a tool is that it helps you accomplish something. All a toy can offer you is experience. That's a matter of duration, depth, resonance. Your concrete tasks soon fall away, but your experiences, well, they linger to be absorbed as and internalised as, uh, as memories. And they don't just enter your brain. We now know that experiences change our bodies. We even pass some on in our DNA. That's partly what I mean about the potency of useless, useless beauty. That's, that's why I read novels and why I write them. For immersion, for experiences, for resonance and depth, and mostly for useless beauty. But a novelist has to make beauty from squalor, from suffering, 
Because without trouble, without a problem, there's no story to tell. There's nothing at stake and nowhere to go. And so somehow I end up spending my days writing stuff like this. I headed for the shed and then I stopped. And I don't know why really. All I saw was his ute. And there was something funny about it, like it was way too high in the arse, like the tray was all angled up. And I thought, I'm not seeing right because of the swollen eye and stuff. Maybe that's why I didn't cop on straight away. Because the front wheels of the Hilux were fully off. Both of them was laying flat on the floor, one against the other. The nuts in a pile against the wheel brace. And the hubs, fuck me, the bare hubs were down hard on the concrete. And the ute was cast in a shadow that no light was ever going to make. A shadow doesn't search for a drain like that. Shadows don't have blowflies drowning in them. But I still didn't really know what I was looking at until I crept up past the driver's side door and peeped over the bonnet and saw his hairy legs and his bare feet stuck out from under the rhubarb. I dropped a skateboard and it scooted away and hit something with a clang. And then I saw the high lift jack slumped away from the vehicle. It was laying across rags and a tarry puddle on the cement. I saw tracks where some lizard run through the mess on his way out the door. And then it was plain as dog's balls. I didn't even get down on my knees and check. Maybe I should have, to make sure and take some satisfaction from it. But I already knew the old turd was cactus. So I turned around and walked out real careful. I went straight for the house up the side path. But I had to stop for a sec near the gas bottles. Yacked all over me vans. It was puke the colour of mustard it was. I just kicked them shoes off and kept going. The West Australian wheat belt is a battlefield, a war grave really. A place where two generations ago humans waged and won an epic war against nature. When vast woodlands were scraped away and torched to create broadacre paddocks on a scale that was and remains breathtaking. But now it's a strangely desolate region, stalked by rising salt and social despair. People have been leaving it for decades. Suicide rates, especially of young men, are three times higher than metropolitan levels. And this is where my story begins. That scene I read earlier about someone crushed beneath a car, you might be asking, what the hell's happening here? Who's telling us this? Well, fair enough. I wanted to know that myself when this grisly scene first elbowed its way into my consciousness. And it was weird because it arrived with all the heat of a memory while I was trying to write another book entirely, which is maddening and bloody typical. (laughs) So who's witnessing this scene? Who's telling this story? Whose voice is this? Well, it took some time to discover, I have to confess. Um, Writing this book, The Shepherd's Hut, was a process of surrender. To get it right, I had to yield to the voice telling it and find out what I could as I went along. I'm flying off the ground, out of the dirt, and I'm no kind of beast anymore. So what does that make me? Someone you won't see coming, that's what. Someone you can't hardly imagine. Any of you's heard my voice now, you'd think it was weather or a bird screaming 
you'd be sweating sand like I'm the end of the world. This, um, this voice just came with the imagery. It was the sound of someone alien and yet deeply familiar to me. A spiky, damaged, vainglorious, profane and opinionated adolescent. A boy who sounds at the very best like a bit of a handful. Put it this way, you'd think twice about giving him a lift or having him in your home. And if you passed him in the street, you'd be wary and alert. I think you know who I'm talking about. The prickly boy, the dirty boy, the smirking, smouldering boy you wish would just get on the bus and go away. The kind of boy you cross the street to avoid. The casually violent boy you fear that you have no power over. You may pity him a little in your progressive way, but mostly you despise him, you fear him, you want him gone. Well, he doesn't exist, this particular kid, my surly boy. He's a confection, a figment. All the same, I had him in my car and in my house and in my head for a couple of years. I'll tell you now, I'm not sure I'd recommend the experience because, yeah, he is a bit of a handful as a character, as a voice. So when I started writing this novel, I think I hedged my bets a bit because of that. Initially, I told the story from three or four different points of view because there are, of course, other people in the story and because I thought this approach might throw different light on the central character. Well, that's what I told myself. What I was really doing was minimising exposure to that voice, shielding the reader from the un the confronting unseemliness of his thoughts. Maybe it's my age or my having become comfortably middle class. Maybe it's the times we live in, the pressure you feel to keep yourself nice and your discourse blameless. Smooth and friction-free, that's how we like all our transactions and encounters now. Retail has trained us that way, hasn't it? It's infected our culture, our dreaming, So that in our storytelling, we need virtue signalled at every opportunity. The likability of characters has to be dialled up to 11. And their safely secular redemption is a foregone conclusion. We expect closure like a money-back guarantee. Here I am caught with this grotty, foul-mouthed, racist urchin who's 50 shades of wrong for all those expectations. Thanks, mate. Anyhow, the fancy way, the multifocal, creative writing way of telling this story, it just didn't work. And I saw in the end that I was just being a coward. So I relented and I went back to my unlovely boy and gave him the floor, so to speak. Wondering, of course, if in doing so I'd allowed myself to become his boy instead. And the jury is probably still out on that one. This kid never quite tells you how old he is, but you're pretty sure he's still a minor. He likes guns and knives and using his fists. He figures it's always best to get the first punch in, don't let up till the other bloke's on the turf, and once he's down, sink the slipper for good measure. But he's not just a fighter. He's a lover too. Problem is, he loves his cousin, and passionately. And she's even younger than him. And trust me, they're not just holding hands while they watch The Lion King. 
cue awkward laughter. (laughs) It is Melbourne, they hardly laughed. (laughs) Aren't we anxious? (laughs) Hang on, not as anxious as me, mate. (laughs) I was so anxious I couldn't even get the water down. Anyway, his name is Jaxie Clacton. He's got no siblings. He lives in a tiny town in the northern wheat belt of WA. One roadhouse, one pub, one silo. His mum died of cancer only a few months ago. He left school at 14 and now he's a butcher's apprentice to his old man who's a terrible drunk and beats the crap out of him. Jaxie's body is covered in welts and scars and bruises. He's got a special secret name for his father. He calls him Captain Wankbag, or the Cap for short, when he's feeling affectionate. This is a bloke who's managed to gouge out his own eye with a fly swat, which I suppose does indicate a certain creative genius. Jaxie laughs at him, he despises him, but most of all, he fears him. In fact, he wishes he was dead. You can't really blame him. And so here's how boy this first night at the beginning of the book, standing in the shed, concussed, one eye swollen shut, taking in this grisly tableau, a scene, by the way, that came into my head one sunny day in paradise for reasons I'm not even going to guess at. The man under the car, of course, is wankbag and he's dead, head crushed like a pig melon, as Jaxie has it. It's a horror to behold, and yet it's Jaxie's first glimpse of freedom. Freedom being, of course, just another word for nothing left to lose. Although Jaxie still has someone left to lose. I just went, he says. Got going, kept pushing. That's all I was for days, this moving crazy thing. Pushing, hauling, going. So begins Jaxie's flight, his long trek. He leaves home in the dark with only what he can carry. That's a high-powered rifle, some ammo, a bit of food and a few litres of water. At the outset, he's running from the cops. He's convinced they'll blame him for his old man's death. After all, everyone in town knows what Jaxie's suffered at his father's hands. But eventually, his journey takes on another dimension. Jaxie's walking out beyond the confines of his narrow world. Literally, as he crosses into the goldfields and the salt country towards the desert, but also imaginatively as he's forced to reflect on his life along the way. Jaxie thinks it's a getaway, but it turns out to be a little bit more complicated than that. Out there in the wild country, he has to be resourceful and self-reliant, and this does play to his strengths. He's got some bushcraft. He knows how to hunt and, of course, to butcher meat. He's got the whole male warrior thing down. He's courageous and stoical and he's mentally tough too. He's determined to survive and to live on his own terms. And early on, Jaxie's machismo and his rather startling lack of empathy are a gift. But it's hard and lonely and brutal, this life of total solitude and macho self-reliance. In order to live, Jaxie's caught in an endless cycle of trekking and hunting and killing and butchering. It's a life drenched in blood and shit, a furtive existence of constant leaving and endless vigilance. He's desperate 
to be invisible, forever counting bullets and searching for water. And he's a rugged little unit, but the only way he can endure it all is to suppress all feeling, smother all residual empathy and shut off memory to make himself, as he says, a thing. But that only gets him so far. Stuff gets past his armour, ideas and stuff. Stuff that's more scary than sleeping on the ground alone in the dark under the biggest skies on earth. In the end, he says, I stepped over the rocky ground between me and this old red roo and saw he was bled out and dead as a rock. But when I squatted down with the knife, I looked at his big brown eye and saw myself there, a reflection of me, a kind of shadow looming out of the sky. And I had this mad idea, like, there it is, death, that's me, that's what I am. Jaxie comes to understand a little of what it is to be a human abroad in creation, the daily price of human survival, what that costs the self and what it costs the natural world. He's ambushed by the kind of realisation many of us cocooned in our bourgeois comforts and denials can shield ourselves from, that despite our best intentions and right thinking, despite the fact we aspire to be makers and lovers and dreamers, humans are also users, breakers, killers, creatures doomed to feed on other living things. And whether you're a... Oh, you're right? <laughs> Get the gaff. <clears throat> and whether you're a lukewarm Anglican carnivore like me or a wafty white Buddhist vegan from Brunswick... Uh, <laughs> That's just an inescapable fact, and it's terrible to confront. It certainly unsettles Jaxie. Even though he's been shaped by violence, even though hardness is his measure of character, it's the first time he's wondered, is that all I am? Will I only ever be the bringer of death? In a way that the ordeal Jaxie's undergoing is just an extreme version of the home life and school life he's left behind. He's always lived in the world of things, of tools, of doing. He's used to being lonely and isolated, used to being scared and telling himself he's not. And he's been marinated in violence. He's internalised that. It lives almost like a virus in his body. His limbs, his face, his eyes, they all project it. He's always lived in a state of hypervigilance, fearing attack and offence at every turn. But attack and offence are within him, they're boiling in him. They're his prime instincts, ever-present in his language, in his habits of mind. He trusts in actions. He's wary of talk and introspection. In many ways, Jax is a stunted creature. At times, given the stuff he thinks and says, he seems monstrous. But here's the thing. Like all children, Jaxie was born wild, But that doesn't explain his savagery. That's not congenital. The savagery in him has been learnt. Learnt at home, at school, in the wider culture of consumption and entertainment. 
He simply didn't know any other way of being. Even so, there's a stirring in him. Worn down and hungry, unsure half the time if he's running for things or running from them, he begins to sound now and then as if he's searching for something better within himself. He's programmed to doubt that impulse, of course. He's been told all his life that he's rubbish, that he's going to amount to five-eighths of fuck all. And yet, all the same, he nurses a little hope, which is dangerous because it makes him vulnerable. To live, he says, you've got to be hard, I know that, but nobody wants to be a dead-set cunt. That's just not fucking decent. And I realise not the most complex or sanitised bit of philosophy <laughs> dreamt under austral skies, but um, more than likely, probably more enlightened and more honest than some of the mealy-mouthed discourse we get from corporations and political operatives. And look, maybe it'll catch on. Hashtag, don't be a cunt. Sorry, Mum, the kid made me say it. (laughs) Damn, I can still taste it. Jaxie's hobbled by his narrow experience, hobbled by his limited means, but he still yearns for some kind of decency and virtue. And he's not big on forgiveness, but you can see him eventually attempting to understand those who've wronged him. When he thinks about his father, he says... Maybe he started out decent, but he's spoiled. Anything with blood in it can probably go bad, like meat. And it's the blood makes me worry. Carries things you don't even know you got. Sometimes I wonder if that nasty, mean shit is in me too, like he's passed it on. Does that mean I'm going to be that way? Jaxie's witnessed the, his mother being dominated, humiliated, silenced, menaced and brutally assaulted as a matter of routine and he's hated seeing it. He feels ruined by having watched on without being able to rescue her. He feels polluted by it to the degree that he's frightened about what he's going to do to his own kids should he ever have them and what he might inflict on Lee, this girl he loves, the person who's the only source of hope in his life and who he's trying so hard to reach. Lee's up north, waiting for him, or so he hopes. To get to her, he has to cross the salt country. He doesn't even know if he's worth waiting for. All the same, he's banking everything on her being there when he makes it. And maybe this is all a fantasy on his part. But Jaxie's looking to an imagined future, setting a course for tenderness and love, He's on a journey to adulthood, but he's doing it all without a map and in more ways than one. Like many young men, he's overarmed and desperately underprepared. And the reason for that's no mystery. Everything Jaxie's learnt about me being a man is corrupt. Not just defective, not simply incomplete or inadequate, but dangerously, poisonously wrong. Because the men in his life, the only people upon whom he's been able to model himself, are brutes. They trade in force. They arm themselves against imagination and empathy and contemplation. Every man in Jaxie's life up to this point has been a fortress. For these men, 
Relationships are equations, problems requiring mastery. In their airless universe, there are no conversations, only declarations and fraught silences. The men in Jaxie's life are emotional infants. They despise women and lean upon them in equal measure. Misogyny is Jaxie's culture. It's his birthright, his language, and he's trapped in it, just as he's ensnared in his casual racism and his frontier mentality. These are his default settings. Out in the wild country beyond the towns and the farms and roads, he thinks he's found refuge in wilderness, the idea of which suggests a blank field, a clean slate. In other words, a place without people. And that's a curiously durable colonial notion, isn't it? For a while, a week or two, the country he's trekking through does well to hide and protect him. It also feeds him. So, a bit like Huckleberry Finn before him, whose name probably won't ring a bell to poor old Jaxie, he's lit out for the territories. But any notion that he's safe in this kind of country, even if he does find water, well, that's illusory. It's also a mistake to think he's alone out there, as he discovers walking out onto a vast, dry salt lake and getting himself completely turned around. I was halfway back to shore before I saw there was something off about the prints I was following. The treads had changed. And once I paid proper attention, I saw the whole shape of the boot was wrong. These ones weren't mine. And fuck me if that didn't come as a kick in the clacker. I got down on my knees to make sure, but it was no mistake. There were some other bastard's boot marks. And I'm like, fuck! Poor old Jaxie. He thinks he's finally safe from people. But that country isn't empty, never has been. People have lived out there as long as there have been people. Fact is, there's someone else out there right now and those boot prints put it beyond doubt. And for him, that's a problem. He doesn't want to be dragged in by the cops or the welfare. Also because other people are a problem full stop. Whether he's out here in the bush or back at school... They're an issue to be dealt with. Another person is not an opportunity, not a potential relationship or ally. She or he is a problem to solve because it's people who stand between you and what you want. During the course of this story, someone rather mockingly calls Jaxie a wild colonial boy. It's a sort of throwaway line, but it's on the money. And what a terror to Australia they've been, our wild colonial boys. What a terror they remain. A terror to the natural world, a terror to girls and women, a terror to immigrants, to gays and lesbians, a terror to our aspirations for a civil and decent and mature society. This is the terror we don't get hysterical about in the media around the water cooler. doesn't get its own super department in Federal Cabinet. Nobody gets issued a black paramilitary uniform to combat this form of terror. Of course, I'm talking about the terror generated by toxic masculinity. In her recent book, 
down girl, and I can recommend it, Kate Mann has very helpfully described sexism as the underlying ideology and misogyny as the policing and enforcement arm of that set of beliefs and behaviours. Misogyny doesn't need to be personal. It's systemic. It's a constant and deep and often discreet undertow, something so resilient and virulent you don't always recognise it. even when its beery breath is hot against the back of your neck. There are habits of mind and patterns of behaviour that are ever-present, endlessly reinforced and often only seemingly disguised by lip service. Like the strangely stubborn assumption that women should be givers and men takers. And just because that idea isn't always expressed contemptuously doesn't mean it isn't shot through with contempt. And the fact it's often socially accommodated doesn't mean it's just. It's certainly not a healthy idea. It's dangerous. And how do we know? Well, from long experience. More Australians live in fear of male violence than any other credible threat. Think back. 88 Australians died horribly in the Bali bombings of 2002. And that was an outrage terribly traumatic to those people's families. It sent shockwaves through the nation. Laws were changed. Memorials were built. And fair enough. But you know, here at home, about the same number of women are killed by their husbands and partners every year. And they die horribly. Strangled, beaten, stabbed, burnt. Not killed by fanatical strangers murdered by people they loved or once loved and no memorials to them. So add those figures up since 2002 and try telling me that terror is the wrong word to use. People deploy terror to assert control, to apply constant low-level pressure, to make an argument without the inconvenience or complication of words. It's an argument about power. And look, I realise this is fraught stuff for a bloke to be talking about, especially right now. And this is plainly not my area of expertise, so I hope you'll forgive me my clumsiness. I am, after all, just a storyteller, a glorified tradie in the culture caper. But a man does learn things, eventually... As a father, as a son, a brother, a husband, an uncle, a grandfather. You also learn things as a friend and neighbour. Things that hit you deeper than the stuff you thought you already knew intellectually. Because they're not just about people per se, they're not about generalisations. They're about people you know and love. You watch the girls in your life, you see them become women, and you finally notice... I mean, viscerally notice how things really are for them. The unwritten rules they're forced to live and play by and the way those rules are enforced by men and, yes, sadly, by women. The silent assumption of male authority, the policing of gender roles, the special wearisome calculations women have to make just in order to proceed safely in their normal lives. 
And these things are harder to ignore and even harder to negotiate if you live outside the more feminised, reconstructed and progressive enclaves of our country. Out in regional Australia, the linguistic hygiene of the inner city has no purchase and no one's pretending much to the contrary. All the tropes of misogyny are there, writ large. And look, it's not all wake in fright and Wolf Creek. <laughs> all the same, the social atmosphere is distinctively masculine, often hyper-masculine, and that's just the women. <laughs> it is, for better or worse, our, our vivid, steady state. And to be fair, you do meet a lot of warm, lovely blokes, and life would be intolerable otherwise, even for a bloke. But you also come up against the kind of men who embody the darker side of masculinity. To some degree, they flourish there, unmodified, even amplified by their setting. And they're like every ghastly cliché, every straw man sexist pig you've ever seen wheeled out in a shouty opinion piece. But those abstract examples, those pigs, they're blokes I know, with kids and partners I know, and businesses, whether I like it or not, I depend upon. As a man, these are people you're constantly and delicately having to distinguish yourself from. But you're also forced to negotiate them, civically if not socially. Even more awkwardly, you're compelled to remember that they're people, not types, not examples, not objects. And that's a bit of a challenge, really, this queasy intimacy. Because they're always there at the IGA, the servo, in the schoolyard, on the beach, in town meetings. And you can leave town to cleanse yourself of them if you must, but you can't make them go away. And ultimately, given the smallness of the community, they're people you have no choice but to get along with somehow. And small-town life is often like that, physically beautiful, socially problematic, politically bloody frightening. And I write about these people and these communities because they trouble me and fascinate me. I'm curious about these folks. I, I worry about them. I think they're worth being interested in. And because of what I'm depicting, the attitudes and outcomes that actually apply in these places... I realise some readers feel uncomfortable, and I understand that. If you're in the academy, say, or in an inner-city cohort, this stuff is a real assault to the sensibility, and quite likely you're tuned to a finer degree of offence because you enjoy a nicer normal, and lucky you, I'm envious. But there's also a real cultural pressure now to present things not as they are, but as they could be or should be which of course comes back to the idea of art as an instrument, the novel as an instructional video or correctional tool. And it's not new, that pressure. It's always been with us, whether it's been exerted by the emperor or the church, the party, of course the academy and now good old Facebook. And look, I don't blame people for feeling uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable about this stuff. The source of my discomfort isn't so much theoretical or ideological, it's visceral. I write about this stuff, the racism, the misogyny, the contempt for the environment, with my heart in my mouth, 
because it's intimate, it's personal. It concerns my neighbours and friends, my relatives, people I love and fear for, people I may have reason to fear myself. For the simple fact that because of where I am and where I live and work, my views are never the consensus views. And the older I get, the more I understand poor old Ferdinand the bull. You feel like the right beef in the wrong paddock. It's a long time since I was a boy, and my boyhood was very different to Jaxie Clacton's. And it's mostly because there was no violence in our home. None of us, my brothers or my sister or my mum, lived in fear of it under our own roof. So I had to learn about male violence at a remove, really, some of which is inevitable when your dad's a cop in a country town. I learned that not everybody sat at their dinner table or took a bath or laid down in their bed at night in peace. But I also picked up some stuff directly. Walking into other kids' homes, sometimes just walking into their yards was enough. Feeling the hair go up in the back of my neck. It was always the presence of a man that did that. A man your body recognised as a threat, even if your conscious mind hadn't quite copped on yet. Always that dark, brooding menace. Rage without language. And look, I'm not saying I was ever personally immune to poisonous masculinity, far from it. As a teenager, I was hardly the most highly evolved specimen. I, uh, I fancied myself a bit of a wag. I said all the lazy, stupid, cruel things that'll make a girl feel bad and a woman feel desperately tired. Kids laughed and that was a, a kind of reward, a form of approval. And though, like Ferdinand the Bull, I was never a fighter, not much beefcake, but somehow never a shortage of inconvenient horns, I was often burning with unfocused rage, unfounded anxieties, imagined threats. I guess that's the wordless rage of the emotional infant. When I was 13, for months at a time, I stood at the window with a rifle and pointed it at people. You see, girls talked, they were licensed to share their troubles, but boys were expected to suck it up in silence. And as a new kid in town, when the world suddenly seemed threatening, I armed myself, literally. Now, of course, this amazes me, it appalls me. I was a child with no direct experience of violence, and yet when the world got complex and challenging, I reached for a source of ultimate power to resolve things. I guess that's wordless force, action over contemplation, and what Breaker Morant famously called Rule 303, and how we all cheered like dolts in the cinema when uh, Edward Woodward declaimed those lines in the movie. But why should, be I, why should I be so amazed I did this? Think of the background message in my culture. At, the, at school, the, the cane and the fist answered every question. On the world stage and in the movies... The gun solved every problem. And when I was 13 and watching the TV news in glorious black and white, I saw that if the gun didn't make the argument plain enough, then napalm would certainly do the job. And they've outlawed the fist and the cane at school, thank God. And on the world stage, napalm is temporarily out of favour. All the same, the gun and the suicide vest and the drone-delivered missile 
are still the clearest language being spoken. If you think a kid doesn't notice that, then you have no respect for children. I knew boys like Jaxie Clacton. They scared the living hell out of me. They fascinated me too. I think because their behaviours were so florid and alien and inexplicable. It was only when I had some fleeting and usually accidental insight into how they lived at home that I began to see a little of what might have made them like that. The fathers and uncles, the grandfathers and their mum's ghastly boyfriends. Sometimes, sadly, you only had to meet their mums. Those boys were living in the only world they knew. And look, I don't have any grand theory about masculinity, but I am at the beach and in the water a lot. As a surfer, you do spend a lot of time bobbing about, waiting for something to show up, waiting for something to happen. So eventually you get talking, or you listen to others talking. See, I spend my work days alone in a room with people who don't exist. So these maritime conversations actually make up the bulk of my social life. <laughs> Don't laugh, it's true. <laughs> and these days, most of the people in the water are younger than me and some by 50 years or more. I like it. I like the teasing and the jokes, the shy, asymmetrical conversations, the fitful moments of mutual curiosity and bewilderment. But a lot of the time, I'm just watching and listening with affection Indulgence, amusement. I'm often puzzled and sometimes horrified. Interested, but careful, of course, not to appear too interested. But the wonderful thing about getting older, and this is something that many women in the room will understand, is that after a certain point, you just become invisible. (laughs) And for me, after years of being a bit too visible for my own comfort, this late-life waterborne obscurity is a mercy there are a lot more girls in the water these days, and thank God for that. Hallelujah. Can't tell you how heartening it is. But I'd just like to focus on the boys for a moment. For what a mystery a boy is, even to a grown man, perhaps especially to a grown man, and how easy it is to forget what beautiful creatures they are. There's so much about them and in them that's lovely, graceful, dreamy, vulnerable. All these qualities we either don't notice or simply blind ourselves to. Such native tenderness in children, in boys as much as in girls, I think. But so often I see boys having the tenderness shamed or squeezed out of them. Boys and young men are so routinely expected to betray their better nature, to smother their consciences and to renounce the best of themselves and submit to something low and mean, as if there's only one way of being a bloke, one valid interpretation of the part, the role, if you like. It's that awful undertow I was talking about. There's this constant pressure to enlist to pull on the uniform of misogyny, join the shithead army that enforces and polices sexism. And it grieves me to say it's not just men pressing those kids into service. These boys in the surf, 
The things they say to me, the stuff I hear them saying to their mates, some of it makes you want to hug them. Some of it makes you want to cry. Some of it makes you ashamed to be a male. Especially the stuff they feel entitled or obliged to say about girls and women. What I've come to notice is that all these kids are rehearsing and projecting. They're trying it on, rehearsing their masculinity, projecting their experimental versions of it and wordlessly looking for cues the whole time. Not just from each other but from older people around them, especially the men. And that can be uh, heartbreaking to witness, to tell you the truth, because the feedback they get is so damn unhelpful. Because if it's well-meant, it's feeble and half-hearted. Because good men don't always stick their necks out and make an effort. It's true, the blokes around me in the water are there for respite, like me, to escape complexity and responsibility for an hour or two, to save themselves from going mad in their working lives. But their dignified silence, their cool dispassion, allows other messages, other poisonous postures to flourish. Too often, in my experience, the ways of men to boys lack all conviction. They lack a sense of responsibility and gravity. And I think they lack the solidity and coherence of tradition. Sadly, modernity has failed to replace traditional codes with anything explicit or coherent or benign. We're left with values that are residual, fuzzy, accidental or sniggeringly conspiratorial. We've scraped our culture bare of ritual pathways to adulthood. And I guess that's our cultural wheat belt our own scorched earth legacy. There are lots of reasons for having clear felled and burnt our own traditions since the 1960s. Some of them are very good reasons. I'm just not sure what we replaced them with. We've left our young people to fend for themselves and we retain a kind of indulgent, patronising approval of rites of passage in other cultures, including those of our first peoples, But the poverty of mainstream modern Australian rituals is astounding. I mean, what are we left with? The sly first beer your uncle slips you? The 18th birthday party with a keg as the icon? Or maybe the B&S ball if you live in the bush? What does it come down to? The first drink, the first root, the first bog lap in your mum's Corolla? And you can call me a snob, but that strikes me as pretty thin stuff. Surely this is cultural impoverishment and in such a prosperous country. That's salt rising to the surface, poisoning the future. In the absence of explicit, widely shared and enriching rites of passage, young men in particular are forced to make themselves up as they go along. And that usually means they put themselves together from spare parts. And the stuff closest to hand tends to be cheap and defective, and that's dangerous. Toxic masculinity is a burden to men. I'm not for a moment suggesting men and women suffer equally from misogyny because that's clearly and fundamentally not true. And nobody here needs to hear me mansplaining on the subject of the patriarchy. (laughs) 
But I think we forget or simply don't notice the ways in which men too are shackled by misogyny because it narrows their lives, distorts them. And that sort of damage, it radiates. It travels just as trauma is embedded and travels and metastasizes in families. And slavery should have taught us that. The stolen generations are still teaching us that. Misogyny, like racism, is one of the great engines of intergenerational trauma. Like a lot of young men, Jaxie really has no idea how dangerous he is. And the threat that he wants to project isn't even the half of it. The real danger is the stuff he's unconscious of. A man in, mac- a man in manacles doesn't fully understand the threat that he poses to others, even as he's raging against his bonds, especially as he's raging against his bonds. When you're bred for mastery, when you're trained to endure and fight and suppress empathy, how do you find your way in a world that cannot be mastered? How do you live a life in which all of us must eventually surrender and come to terms? Too many men are blunt instruments, otherwise known, I guess, as tools. (laughs) Because of poor training, they're simply not fit for purpose. Because life is not a race, it's not a game, and it's not a fight. When Jaxie sets out with his stolen rifle, his water jug and his scraps of food, he doesn't know this, how can he? He just knows what he knows. He's in the world he's from. There's so much in life and love he's tragically unprepared for. He strives to control himself, but he can't control the world and he can't control who's in it, not even out on the edge of the desert. Despite all his efforts to avoid people, Jaxie eventually stumbles upon an isolated camp. The hut was in a clear patch of orange stony dirt, Behind that, a little way toward the salt lake, was the windmill. There was a trough at the foot of the tower and around that, a fence, a kind of corral made of wire and bushwood and shit. Someone was moving around in there. But when I got a good focus, I saw it wasn't a person at all. It was just a dirty white nanny goat. And that thing was pissy. It was jumping at the wire, bouncing off the gate, turning circles. Then I heard a voice inside the hut, a man. And the fucker wasn't just talking, he was singing, lunging it out, shameless, like he fancied the sound of his own voice. So I'm stuck for a sec, kind of blank. And that's when he steps out barefoot through the open door. I drop the binox and stare. So I guess you could say this is a story in two parts, the first being... Jaxie's solitary flight into the wild country and the second, his unlikely and, shall we say, rather awkward encounter with an older man, a bloke called Finton McGillis, who's every bit as damaged as he is but who springs from another world entirely. And for one thing, Finton sings and that nearly does Jaxie's head in. He loves to talk, which is another thing our boy is not used to. For his part, Finton is both afraid of Jaxie and fascinated by him. And for Jaxie, having an older man take an interest in him, well, that makes him deeply suspicious. In a way, it threatens to undo him. 
Fintan McGillis is not an ideal mentor, far from it, but he does offer a different idea of manhood to what Jaxie's used to. All these $10 words and priesty shit, it was priceless, a bloke carrying on like that. It was like he had too many words in him, like he was drowning in his own talk. Us Clacton's never done our thinking out aloud, or our talking neither, really. Jaxie doesn't know what to make of Finton, doesn't know what to do about him either. He wonders if he should kill him. <laughs> because the old coot might blab and give him away. And for all Jaxie knows, the old man's a pedophile and probably deserves a bullet in the guts anyway. So he's constantly wrong-footed. But then once they get acquainted, he hates the power the old man has over him. And he's not sure what that is. Not until it's too late, anyway. Because he doesn't know what respect and regard and affection feel like when they come from a man. I have to say it wasn't always easy being in Jaxie's world, in his body, his mind, in his lexicon. For someone like me who lives on language, it was quite a trial being reduced to Jaxie's narrow vocabulary. Obviously there's the technical problem of how to convey this kid's restless questing of imagination given, shall we say, the limited terms available. And there was the added challenge of making it beautiful as well as convincing. But there's a moral challenge too, because there were so many times when, faced with this kid's poverty, and I'm talking about his emotional poverty, his linguistic poverty, my spirit just ached. It's not just that as the novelist you're the conduit of all this nasty language and these wrong ideas, finding yourself uttering things on the page you wouldn't dream of saying in real life. Now it's worse than that because you begin after a while to feel a bit like a, I don't know, a foot binder. It's like you're holding him back. In one sense you're just documenting this boy's life, his utterances, his opinions, but you are also his creator. For the sake of the story, for the sake of some sense of realism, I'm withholding ideas and language from Jaxie that at every turn I instinctively wish to give him. Why? Because ideas and language are means of liberation and transformation. They could change Jaxie's life as they have changed mine. So it can be an experience of pushing against your own values against your own knowledge, perhaps also against your own privilege. It wasn't always a very exhilarating or uplifting experience, I have to confess, but for some reason it seemed necessary. And I know that sounds a bit rich coming from someone who makes claims for things that are essentially useless. And I know some readers may recoil from Jaxie Clacton and refuse to engage, and I guess I'm resigned to that. But those readers who persist with him to the end will wonder how he fares beyond the final page. What will become of him? Will he meet his beloved cousin in Mount Magnet? Will the two of him evade the law long enough to make it to Broome or Darwin or Queensland the way Jaxie daydreams it? And I know the boy as well as anybody, better than he knows himself. I am, after all, his creator and sustainer. But even I don't know how to answer that question. Because really, what are the odds for a kid like this? Should he, by some miracle, survive and stay out of jail? What kind of man will he become? Because by the time the book ends, 
Jaxie's not just in a world of trouble. It's pretty clear to the reader that Jaxie is a world of trouble. And the question for me is, can a boy like him be liberated from his shackles? Steeped and warped as he is by violence and misogyny, yearning though he is for tenderness, peace and decency, what are the odds he can leave the world he's from? At the end of the book, he hits the road in a car loaded with jerry cans, with his plate of goat chops, with a shotgun and shells on the seat beside him, 15 or so at the wheel of a stolen car, fanging up the great northern highway, hardly able to see over the steering wheel. And given everything he's experienced up to this point, what are the odds? True, he is a little different to the lad we first encounter at the beginning of the story. But will he ever be different enough? Will he be somebody you and I and our daughters and sisters will not need to fear? Well, I guess you could ask the same question about half the boys we know. Can we wean them off machismo and misogyny? Will they ever relinquish the race, the game, the fight and join the dance? I hope so. Because liberation, which to me is a process of disarmament, reflection and renewal, isn't just desirable, it's necessary. In our homes, in business and clearly, most clearly of all, in our politics. Children are born wild and that's beautiful. It's wondrous, regardless of gender. Even when they're feral creatures, kids are reservoirs of tenderness and empathy. But some do turn into savages. And sadly, most of those are boys. They're trained into it because of neglect or indulgence. And when we meet them in the street and have them in our classrooms and haul them into the courts, we recoil from them in horror and disgust. Our detention centres and jails are heaving with them. They're a terror to Australia, real and imagined. But I worry about our revulsion for them, our desire to banish them from consciousness for their non-compliance, their mistakes, or their faithful adherence to the scripts that have been written for them. Boys need help, and men need fixing. I'm mindful of that. Males arrive in our community on the coattails of an almost endless chain of unexamined privilege. Don't deny that for a second. But patriarchy is bondage for boys too. It disfigures them, even if they're the last to notice, even if they profit from it. And their disfigurement diminishes the ultimate prospects for all of us, wherever we are on the gender spectrum. I think we need to admit this. But before we even get to that point, we have to acknowledge the awkward, implacable fact of their existence, especially those who most offend our sensibilities. We should resist our instinct or our ideological desire to cross the street to avoid them or our our impulse to shut them down and shut them out and then finally lock them up. We need to have higher expectations of them, provide better modelling for them. But before any of that's possible, we need to attend to them. Yes, boys need their unexamined privilege curtailed, just as they need certain proscribed privileges and behaviours made available to them. But the first step is to notice them, 
to find them worthy of our interest as subjects, not objects. How else can we hope to take responsibility for them? And it's men who need to step up and finally take their full share of that responsibility. And those savages, those boys we find so appalling, they're not cattle. Hell, if they were cattle in an Indonesian abattoir, we'd be wringing our hands and tweeting in tears. But if they're boys, it's got to be something pretty extreme to get our attention. And really, we shouldn't need images of a boy naked and covered in shit on a cell floor or a boy shackled into a restraining chair with his face obscured by a spit hood before we feel a twinge of sympathy, a first moment of curiosity. I mean, amazing, isn't it, really? Shaming how long it takes for the curiosity to kick in, even when you see those images. Because the horror of the spectacle, well, it's titillating as well as shocking. It appalls us while confirming what we already think. Savages. And I think few of us are immune to that. But who is this faceless, writhing, seething, monstrous waif on the TV? You do get to this thought eventually. You find your way past the general idea of boys and bad boys and dirty boys and awkward boys to this particular boy. How did this child arrive here? How did this horrendous moment find him and claim him? And why weren't we curious about him and all his fellow inmates for a single second before this freak show arrived in our living rooms and on our phones? But listen, all this thematic boy talk, it's well after the fact. I'm a novelist. I didn't set out to write about the problems of men and boys. I don't even do themes. (laughs) I, I just followed a solitary, awkward voice and got curious to make a story. My little book isn't a tool. It has no answers. In writing it, all my attention was on a single boy who doesn't even exist. I was caught up in his particulars, his specifics, not in any generalities or theory. It was only later, after I was finished and thinking about Jaxie's prospects, that I began to think of, well, other boys, other men, like Dylan Voller. I thought about Adrian Bailey too. I thought about Luke Batty. And that got me to thinking about what boys become, what they're robbed of, what they absorb passively from those around them, what they assume or seize forcibly from others without a thought. And I'm still thinking of what boys may yet become, what they need to become and how hard it is to leave the world you're from. Many of us, especially men, are stuck where we began. Change is hard, and taking is easy. It's giving that requires the most courage. Late in the book, Jaxie says this, It's a dangerous feeling, getting noticed, being wanted, getting seen deep and proper. It's shit hot, but terrible too. It's like being took over. It's like your whole skin hurts, like you suddenly grew two sizes in a minute. All a person wants is feeling safe. Peace. That's all I want. I look over Jaxie's shoulder 
across the dashboard to the highway ahead. And I wish him peace. But I also hope that he'll make peace and nurture it, that he and all the real boys out there can find ways to be makers and nurturers and lovers of peace for their own sakes, for all our sakes. Hey, listen, thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to Behind the Lines. If you love the speech, there's an edited excerpt available online. You can find it at The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.